0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Matthew 1. So Matthew 1 and 2, Matthew wants to show through the origin of Jesus. So that's a big word. Matthew 1, 1, this is the genealogy. Literally, this is the origin of Jesus. Matthew 1:18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Literally, this is the, how the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, Came about. So he's using that word. He wants to show through the origin of Jesus that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. We saw last week, you can think of Messiah as the umbrella, bullet point son of Abraham, bullet point son of David. And today we're going to look at a a large section. I'm going to move pretty quickly. It's material that's familiar to you, and it's Christmas. It's the Christmas story. We're not gonna necessarily talk about it through that Christmas lens. We're gonna look at it through the lens of what does it say about Jesus as the Messiah? So Matthew five times quotes the Old Testament. And when I say quotes, don't hear that the way we think of that. Matthew is not, uh, if, if you're a curious person and you go back and read the Old Testament for these quotes, you're gonna see he, it, they're not exact. And so for some of us, that's kind of upsetting What Matthew's doing, it's called a midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, which is an accepted rabbinic practice. It's a way of combining Old Testament quotation and interpretation to get to a fuller meaning of a particular passage. So sometimes Matthew quotes verbatim. Sometimes Matthew smashes a couple of scriptures together. Sometimes he changes some words to more... um, directly highlight what Jesus has done. Sometimes he's just referring to a pattern or a theme that Jesus fulfills. And again, all of that is a legitimate use of the Old Testament. I'm not necessarily gonna take the time here this morning to break down how he's using the Old Testament in each of these scenes. You can just have that in your mind. And again, if that's something that is causing you concern, you can reach out and I can talk with you about that a little more. So as we're moving through this material, two things I want you to keep in mind. one. Messiah, what are the bullet points underneath it? What is Matthew seeing in the Old Testament and connecting to the, the earliest years of Jesus's life to help bolster his case that Jesus is the chosen one? And then the second thing, and this is really different, I want you to look at what Joseph is doing. So on one hand, what, what does, how is Matthew seeing the origin of Jesus, his birth story, and infancy narrative? How is he seeing that? Supporting his case that Jesus is the Messiah, what are the bullet points he's putting under that claim? Recognizing most, this is just introduction. We're just still in the second chapter, and then over here, I want you looking at Joseph and what he's doing. What are Joseph's actions as we read? Again, I'm going to move pretty quickly, but I think we'll be able to get. I think we'll be able to get somewhere. Okay, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give them the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So last week, we were looking at the genealogy of Jesus, and it ended with Jacob is the father of Joseph, Joseph is the husband of Mary, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, and he got to Joseph, but Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, so that creates a little bit of a problem. And in this section that we just read, what Matthew is showing is Joseph's legal adoption of Jesus as his son. That simple act of naming Jesus That signified that Joseph had is seeing Jesus as his own. He's adopted him into his family. And so now he falls under the he he, he's in the line of David. Just like if you adopt a son, he's a graft or a a daughter. They're grafted into your family. Your ancestors become their ancestors. Same is true for Jesus. When he's adopted by Joseph, that simple act of marrying Mary, which maybe is not as simple as it seems. And, uh, and naming Jesus, that signifies he was adopting Jesus into his family. He's now his legal father, which makes Jesus a son of David, a descendant of David. He can check that box. Engagement was different then than now, is more binding. You were considered husband and wife even as an engaged couple. You did not live together or sleep together, but the only way to break an engagement was through divorce. Common understanding was as a righteous man, you had a responsibility and obligation to divorce if your wife your fiance that's what we would call her your fiance if she was cheating on you if she committed adultery as a righteous man your responsibility is to divorce her and so that's what Joseph was going to do until this angel tells him not to in obedience to the angel he marries Mary and then he names the baby Jesus and what Matthew sees in that is the fulfillment of a passage from Isaiah the virgin will give birth we believe that It was called the virgin birth. We believe that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, that Jesus was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. That's where we get the big word for that is incarnation, God becoming a human, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human at the same time. That goes all the way back to his conception. And he's named Emmanuel. Matthew's looking back 30, 35 years after Jesus's resurrection, and he's going, that was God. That's probably not fully developed in his mind. Maybe it is, but at that point, the church was was recognizing Jesus as divine. And so Matthew sees a fulfillment of Isaiah in the conception and birth of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in Mary. Jesus is then fully God and fully human. Chapter two, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you Bethlehem and land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out for them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child was with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So if our first story is Jesus is the Messiah, kind of bullet point son of David, and maybe even son of God, that's faint, but it's there, this idea of Emmanuel. Here we've got Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, kind of comma, born in Bethlehem. That's actually a pretty big deal. So magi or astrologers slash astronomers um, would have had a place in the royal cabinet. Um, these guys see a star, and because of their background, they interpret that star to mean that there's a king born in the west. So they head from Babylonia, where they are, to eight, eight 900 miles to Jerusalem, capital city, where you think you'd find a king, to Herod's palace because you would assume, well, he's the current king, so he would know about any new kings being born, and they ask about it, and the Bible, or the NIV Bible says that Herod is disturbed, not nearly a strong enough word. Herod was in an uproar at this point in his life. This is 6 BC is when Jesus is born, not zero. He's born in 6 BC. Herod dies at, at 4 BC, these last few years of his life. He's increasingly paranoid, and he's concerned about any potential rival to his throne, so his... You know, his, his ears are pricked and he's going, where where is this guy being born? And the leaders of the faith, the Jewish faith come in and they say, according to our scriptures, the Old Testament, this is Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. They smashed those together and said, our king will be born in Bethlehem. That shepherding language, that was a common way of referring to the king in the Old Testament Uh, The kings of Israel were supposed to be shepherds, folks who tended and cared for their people, not tyrants. Oftentimes it didn't work out that way. But that shepherding language is a common way of referring to a king. So they're putting those two verses together and saying it's in Bethlehem where where the Messiah or the king will be born. So this is, I like this one. So son of Abraham, there's probably five million Jews on the planet when Jesus is alive. Let's say half of them are guys. So there's two and a half million people who could say, hey, I'm a son of Abraham. Son of David narrows the pool, some. Uh, David had 20 sons. Um, One of them died in infancy, so he had 19 sons. And then Matthew counts 28 generations from David to Jesus. So that's a lot of sons, having sons, having sons, having sons. We don't know what the number is, but it's not nothing that over the course of all those generations, a thousand years, there's a good many people who could say, hey, I'm a son of David as well. Born in Bethlehem is a little bit different. Bethlehem's probably got a 1,000 people in the town. Not too many guys will be born every year. So if we say Stonebridge is a town, there's probably somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 people who were who a part of this church. Last year, I wrote this down. So last year, we had 18 babies, and six of them were boys. So a little girl heavy last year. 2022, 17 babies, and 10 of them were boys. So you can just think about Herod, at one point, we'll see, he says every boy 10 and, or two and under in Bethlehem. So for us at Stonebridge, which is a bit bigger than Bethlehem, that would be 16 boys over the past couple of years. You're narrowing the field there. Lots of guys, all the Jewish guys could say, I'm a son of Abraham. There'd be a decent number who could say, I'm a son of David, much smaller number who could say, I'm a I was born in Bethlehem. You may be saying, well, there's only one who could say my mom was a virgin. Like that's a, that's a group of one, but that was a pretty controversial statement and difficult to prove. So, so we'll put that one to the side for right now. So it's, it's a narrowing of, of the list there. Matthew again wants to show, hey, look, he, he is the Messiah. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of David. He was born in Bethlehem. Next When they had gone, so that's when the wise men had gone, or the magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, that's Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were, two, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So now Matthew, he's, he's moving beyond just Messiah, son of Abraham, Messiah, son of David. And he's beginning to see some other things in Jesus's life that are reflective of themes and scriptures in the Old Testament. This particular, in this section, Matthew is looking back to Exodus and he's seeing Jesus is the Messiah, kind of bullet point, the new Moses. So in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, you guys, speaking to the Hebrews, there's gonna be another prophet who comes after me, y'all need to listen to him. And over time, that little P prophet became a capital P prophet, and the Jews began to look for him as the Messiah, someone who would be like Moses, who would lead them, deliver them. And Matthew's saying, that guy's Jesus. And so he's intentionally paralleling Jesus's early days with some of those stories in Exodus. So if y'all remember the story at the beginning, go back and read it, Exodus 1, Exodus 2 particularly. At that point, there's an evil pharaoh, And he's intimidated by the number of Hebrews that are, they're multiplying rapidly. And he says to the Hebrew midwives, let the the male children die. If a woman, if a Hebrew woman has a male baby, just let that baby die. The, The midwives don't do that, but that's similar to Herod saying, kill all the male boys two years and under in Bethlehem. Moses was spared because of the actions of his sister. Miriam, when Moses is born, puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River in order to save him. Jesus is saved through the actions of his father. So both Moses and Jesus are saved through the actions of one of their family members. Ultimately, Moses would lead the people of Israel out of physical slavery, and Jesus will lead all of us out of spiritual slavery. You can see the parallels there. Matthew here at the very beginning, he's he's seeing things and saying Jesus is He's like the new Moses, the trickiest passage that we're, or Old Testament citation in this section is that one about Rama a voice is heard in Rama what what exactly is Matthew seeing there? Maybe best guess that was written in that's jeremiah thirty one it was written in looking at the the exile of the the last of, of god's people into Babylon. Rama would have been one of the first cities that those guys would have. Passed as they were being paraded out of Judah into t- theoretically, well, not theoretically, they were they were scattered. They did regather, but they were scattered. And Rachel would at that point she's been dead well over a thousand years. That's just a, it's a picture of her kind of crying in her grave as a mother of Israel at her sons who were being deported. And so you've got the the grief of a mother over losing her. Children that would have been parallel to what's going on in Bethlehem. So that has less to do about Jesus and more to do about the circumstances surrounding his birth. Last scene, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, Having been mourned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. So here's another, Jesus is the Messiah, son of Abraham, yes, son of David, yes, son of David, born in Bethlehem, yes, new Moses, yes. And now we have these other two things that Matthew's picking up that he's, you can call him the true Israelite, or a faithful Israelite, or a faithful son, The idea, and Matthew will play this out over the rest of the book, is that Jesus does what Israel didn't. That Jesus fulfills Israel's destiny in a way that Israel was never able to do. For instance, in Genesis 12, three, God says to Moses, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If you read through the Old Testament, that never happens. Israel doesn't do that. Jesus does that. And so this, when, when we just read out of Egypt, I call my son, what Matthew is saying there is Jesus, he's fulfilling the role that Israel was supposed to play and was unable or unwilling to do it. He is the faithful son of God in a way that Israel never was as a people. We also see here, and this is another theme or thread in the Old Testament, it's the last song that we sang, that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. That was very much a minority view. The Messiah is gonna be a warrior, a conqueror, he's David, he's gonna lead us in battle, we're gonna win. Isaiah 53, that passage that we read on Good Friday, that's, that paints a different picture. Despised and rejected by men. Again, a, this what we just sang, a man of suffering and sorrow, and Matthew is saying, that's him. If you go read the whole, New Te- the whole Old Testament, you'll never see any verse that says the Messiah would be from Nazareth. It's not in there. But what Matthew's doing, he's picking up on that theme, primarily from Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would be obscure, that he'd be rejected, and that he would be, uh, he'd be passed over by his own people. In Nazareth, the town may be 500 people, and you can imagine it, it was kind of a backwater when Nathaniel hears that in John 1 that, Jesus is from Nazareth. He says, can anything good come from that place? That was the thinking. It would be like somebody from Atlanta looking down on somebody from a small town in South Georgia. And you know how that is, that is. They're rednecks and they're not the sharpest you know, tools in the shed. Or you're just kind of that way that we think sometimes about people from small towns. And that was, Nazareth had that reputation. Again, it's 500 people, that's it. Some of you graduated with more people than that. That's how small the town is. And there was this sense of less than. And so Jesus being from Nazareth, in Matthew's mind, that ties into this whole idea of he's gonna be a Messiah that people don't recognize and he's gonna be a Messiah who's ultimately rejected. So again, for for some of you, you're hearing that and you're going, I was already on board. Jesus, I'm following him, he's my savior, he's my king. And maybe that doesn't necessarily bolster you at all and that's okay, it was intended for Matthew's audience, which again has this Jewish background. For those of you in the room who may be skeptical and you're going, I don't know that Jesus is the Messiah, none of that may be convincing to you. And that's okay too. I would encourage you, ask the Lord to show you that Jesus is who he said he was in a way that would be convincing to you. And it may not be through Old Testament prophecy. There may be another way that God wants to speak to you. And I would just encourage you, like walk that road and see. For the rest of us, I wanna, just as we wrap up, I wanna give you just a couple of things to think about through the lens of Joseph. To me, Joseph is very relatable. He's that like kind of a regular guy. And I, I'm sure as we read that, the thing that jumped out at you was how obedient Joseph was. That's really all he does. An angel appears, he has a dream, and he does whatever he's told. It's a great picture for us. If we wanna follow Jesus, that's the invitation, come and follow me that implies obedience. Not just obedience in terms of Jesus is setting our direction, but Jesus is also setting the example for us for how we should live. And again, the idea of following, whether that's somebody in terms of their direction or someone in terms of their example, implies obedience. For Joseph, his obedience was costly and it was quick and it was consequential, if you want words that rhyme. If that helps you, that alliteration helps you lock it in. His obedience cost him something. When he chose to marry Mary, it cost him his reputation. Your Bible, my Bible, describes him as blameless. Your Bible may describe him as just, as someone who's righteous. That means someone who kept the law. When he chose to marry Mary against the conventions of the day that said divorce her because she committed adultery, he lost his reputation as being someone who is just or blameless. That may not seem like a big deal to you. It's a big deal. That was a big deal. It cost him something that mattered, something that he cultivated his whole life. At this point, maybe Joseph, Mary's probably 14. Joseph's probably late 20s, 30, something like that. That's normal. That's not gross. That was a normal arrangement. He spent a long time cultivating that relationship or that reputation, and it's gone with one decision. Kind of the irony of being obedient to God leads to people thinking he's being unfaithful or disobedient to God. Your obedience will cost you as well. Not every time, but it will. If you're following Jesus and you're not following the world, if you're in step with him, you're not gonna be in step with the world and it may cost you. It may cost you socially or reputationally. You may be seen in certain circles in certain ways. There may be things that you're no longer invited to if you keep in step with Jesus and you have to be like, that That hurts. Even as adults, we think about that in lunchroom and whether I'm at the right table, but we feel that even as adults. Everybody got together and you didn't get invited. Everybody's going on vacation and nobody lets you know. I mean, that, that can sting and that can happen. As you get a, if you, that can happen. Uh, it may cost you financially. We just talked about giving. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you're gonna have to give some money away. And that costs, there may be things at work that you can't do in terms of your conscience and that's gonna cost you. It certainly will cost you emotionally. At a minimum, when it comes to relationships, Jesus says, you know, forgive. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That, that doesn't mean that, that, that it's 100% on you, but it's more than 50%. There's pain involved in pursuing relationships. Sometimes it's a lot easier, particularly with difficult people, to cut them off. And if we're keeping in step with Jesus, that cutoff point is it gets pushed out a really long way. And there's a lot of pain between here and there as we try to bear with people's, bear with people, as our love covers a multitude of sins and those types of things, your obedience will cost you. Joseph's obedience was quick. You've heard slow obedience is disobedience. Everybody's heard that. There's something to that. So here, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're sleeping, you have a dream. In the dream, an angel says, go to Egypt. That's 120 miles, six or seven days walk. You're leaving, you don't know when you're coming back, if you're coming back. There's no indication that he knew it was temporary. So that's, you're leaving your job, you're leaving your extended family. Thankfully, these guys just came and dropped off a bunch of gold so you have some money that you can at least fund the trip with. So put yourself in his position. Then you roll over, nudge your wife and say, hey, honey, we're moving to Egypt. And she says, when, and you say now. Now, that night, think about that. That is not nothing. Now, quick obedience. God, because he desires relationship with us, he is gracious, he allows us to wrestle with him, but once it's settled that God has spoken, he expects us to obey immediately. God does not give suggestions. When he's spoken, again, we can wrestle. God, is this you? Once it's settled that it is, the expectation is we move out in obedience. Our obedience will cost us and it's expected to be quick. Joseph's obedience was consequential. He didn't know any of this at the time. We can look back in Matthew, with Matthew's help and Matthew saying, hey, look at all of this Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled because Joseph was obedient to these dreams and these angels. But he didn't know that's what he was doing. It, at a minimum, within Matthew's congregation, there are people who believe Jesus is the Messiah because of what Joseph did. Think about that. His obedience had consequences way beyond what he knew. God weaves our obedience into the mix of what he's doing in our community. And it has an impact. Don't hear that as pressure, but as privilege and responsibility. I, I went to someone's house yesterday in this church who that she, she bought a house in obedience to what she felt like the Lord was telling her to do. We talked back seven or eight months ago about the number of homeless kids in Marietta City Schools and Cobb County Schools and this program to help move those homeless families into, into a, a couple of years of stability, this rental program called Homeless to Home. And she felt the Lord in that and she bought a house and we dedicated that yesterday. And it's super easy to see that choice. That's life-changing for people, breaking a cycle of poverty and a cycle of homelessness, providing stability. That is trajectory-changing, And I want you to know your acts of obedience are as well. Most of the time, we're never gonna see how God weaves them together. It won't be quite as direct as it will be for her. But your obedience counts. It matters. Obedience will cost you. Your obedience, my obedience, it needs to be quick. Once we've settled, this is what God is telling us to do. And it matters in ways that we'll never understand. We need to, we're gonna close Ran a little long, I'm sorry for that. Um, Bo's gonna come back and lead us in ministry. You guys can go ahead and close your eyes. Ministry teams, if y'all could get in place. I want y'all to respond quickly if you are, are willing to do so. Two things, we'll pray with you about whatever you have going on. Two spe- and, and so please come and go ahead and you can go ahead and start making your way to the front if you want, if you want prayer. But two specific invitations. One, we talked about money and we, God has been faithful to us as a church, and you may say, well, I, I'm not seeing that in my own life, and we wanna pray for you. If you're, if you're in a tight financial spot, whether that's because you've made some less than great choices or just you, you just don't make enough money, things are getting more expensive and your, your salary is not keeping up, we wanna pray that God would provide for you and I, I know that's not an easy thing to admit, but I would encourage you, come forward and pray. Nobody's gonna ask you for your bank statement. Nobody's gonna ask you for your credit card bill. Nobody, none of that's going on. All we're doing is praying for God to provide for you. We want you to know him that way. Second, if, you, if there's an issue of obedience in your life, I wanna encourage you, say yes. God's tugging at your heart, something that seems small or large, say yes today. Don't harden your heart, say yes. And we want to pray that God would give you the grace to do that. He won't decide for you, but he will give you grace to say yes. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak into each heart the things that we most need to hear? Would you enable us, empower us to, to respond in humility and obedience? God, I do wanna pray for those who are struggling financially, I know that can be such a, it's just a, it's a constant burden. And we pray for breakthroughs in their life and that they would know you, Father, as their good provider. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.